This year, Sacramento County voters will elect a new district attorney. The next district attorney will be only the third elected to the position in 28 years. One of the candidates is Mr. Tin Ho, who has over 20 years of experience with the Sacramento County District Attorney's Office. Ho, whose family fled Vietnam in 1975, discusses some of his motivation for running for district attorney. This country's given everything to my family. And so it's time to give back. It's service above self. And I've seen injustice. I've felt injustice. And so I'm Dan Gallardy. And on this edition of Elk Grove News Podcasts, we'll hear from Ho on a variety of issues. This interview was conducted on Wednesday, April 20th, 2022. Tin Ho, thank you for joining us today. For listeners who may not be familiar with you, can you give them a brief, a brief biography? Sure. So my name is Tin Ho. I'm an assistant chief at the Sacramento District Attorney's Office. Um, In terms of my professional biography, I've been a prosecutor for two decades, specifically in Sacramento for the last 18 years. Um, I've prosecuted everything from your child molestation and your rape cases all the way up to your gang shootings and gang murders. I was on the gang team for a number of years until I was on the homicide team. So I served four years prosecuting nothing but homicide cases where I prosecuted the East Area Rapist or the Golden State Killer. Then I became the supervisor of our gang team, our hate crime team, and our major narcotic team. And about two years ago, I was promoted to become an assistant chief at the DA's office. Maybe a little bit later in the interview, if it's okay, can we talk a a little bit about the East Area Rapist case? Absolutely. Great. Tim, your campaign motto is safety not politics. I've seen the signs pop up down in Elk Grove and throughout the county. What do you mean by that? What I mean by that is we should take politics out of safety. When we're talking about safety and we're talking about, you know, a lot of conversations about reform, you know, reform needs to be reasonable and not reckless. We can have changes in the law, but those changes always need to reflect and make sure that they take into account the voices of victims. And we shouldn't politicize public safety. It's an issue of life and death. It's an issue of not only feeling safe, but being safe where you live, where you raise your children, where you um, have your businesses, where you go to school, where your kids walk to the park, um, where you ride your bike. And so it's about public safety and not politics. You kind of uh, answered one of the questions I already have, so I'm going to jump ahead to this question anyhow. Uh, About 10 years ago, California California started the uh, realignment program. And then a few years after that, we had Proposition 47, which reduced sentencing and reclassified a number of different crimes. What are your views on the effects of those two actions? And do you think they should be rolled back, uh, maintained, or what's your position on those? You know, I think there are definitely things that we can do to improve in um, both of those laws. Um, Even the Attorney General talked about in terms of doing those very things. When you're talking about, for example, crimes such as domestic violence, you may not realize this, but domestic violence is not considered a serious or violent felony under the law, and it should be. Additionally, when we're talking about public safety and accountability, and we're realigning and sending uh, more inmates and more defendants where they're being prosecuted and they're staying at the local level. We need the funding. We need the funding to make sure that those inmates and those defendants are getting the evaluation and the rehabilitation that they need and that the counties are getting 
the funding to be able to litigate those cases and prosecute those cases and making sure that we have a level of accountability, but that at the same time, after you have accountability, and it always starts there, then you have rehabilitation as well. And so I think we need to see increased funding at the local level to make sure that we are not impacted on the local level of increased crime, and you see that. As a district attorney in California, uh, for each county in California, the sheriff and the district attorney are the highest elected officials in each county. So you will have a very big constituency compared to, say, a supervisor. Mm -hmm. And within those constituencies, you will often have groups that have conflicting views on things. And they'll come to you, as we've seen in the last few years with District Attorney uh, Schubert. If you're elected, how, how do you plan to deal with these constituencies that can, also, can, can often be conflicting with one another? Well, first is I would like to establish what we call a advisory council made up of members of diverse areas of a community and leaders, community leaders, community um, you know, citizens, uh, business organizations, uh, young and old. And so they form an advisory committee uh, and meet with the district attorney on a regular basis to be able to let the district attorney know what's going on in the community and have a voice that reflects the community. And the district attorney hears directly from them. And I think that's important to have that direct communication, first of all, and establish those relationships, establish the trust. The other thing as well is the district attorney is in a unique position. We are, in my opinion, the highest law enforcement official in the county. We prosecute cases. And we're in a unique position to be able to bring people together. And I'll give you one such example. Let's talk about the homeless crisis. It is something that everybody wants to talk about. It is something that is on everybody's mind. And if you drive around Sacramento, but not just Sacramento, whether it's San Francisco, whether it's L.A., whether it's San Jose, what you see are people living in the streets and dying in the streets. And I think it's inhumane to let people die in the streets. But when you're talking about homelessness, there are three things. Number one. It's about housing, but number two and number three, it's also about mental health and drug addiction. And we have to address those two elements of it. And so one of the things that I've been able to do is bring different people together. And that's where the DA's office is. So I'll give you an example of that. If somebody's getting released from the county jail, they have to get released within a certain period of time when the judge releases them under law. And so that might result in somebody getting released from the jail at 11 o'clock at night. If they're suffering from mental health and drug addiction and they don't have a place to live, now they're just out in the streets. Where are they going to be? And they're just dumped, essentially let go out of the street because that's what the law requires. That doesn't do downtown. It doesn't do that individual. It doesn't do our community any good. So one of the things I've been working on with the Board of Supervisors, with the undersheriff, with uh, county executive mental health is I want to create a 24-hour reception location that when a person gets released and if they happen to be homeless and they need services, they're going to get transported to this place. Working with a community-based organization is going to get them temporary housing in a motel, wraparound services where they're going to get services. You have that small window to get to them and a warm handoff where they're just not given an appointment slip but actually taken over and brought to the place where they can get services and will get services. So that's what I'm working on, and that's why the DA's position is important to bring everybody together. Tin, I have to compliment you. It's as if you read the questions ahead of time because I was going to talk about the role mm-hmm. that district attorneys might have in homelessness because that is a widespread problem throughout California and nationally, but particularly here in California. So thank you for answering that question uh, before I even asked it. 
we can always talk more about it. It is, it is a very complex situation, um, and there's much more to talk about on that issue. We touched on this a little bit earlier, or you did actually, about budgets. Now, you, you, you and the sheriff are going to, whoever the next sheriff will be, will be the highest elected officials uh, in the county by virtue of uh, everybody voting for you, mm-hmm. for you or whoever wins the office. But you'll be reporting to the supervisors who control your budget. How do you anticipate working with the Board of Supervisors as it's comprised now and might be recomprised in another six, well, five months, because definitely Don Natoli mm-hmm. will be leaving. How do you anticipate your relationships with the Board of Supervisors, particularly when it comes to budgetary matters? So the budget of the District Attorney's Office is $85 million annual budget. Um, we employed 432 employees, 175 prosecutors. Of those 175 prosecutors, you have approximately 20 supervisors that govern and oversee certain units, domestic violence, gangs, homicides, etc. Above those supervisors are six chiefs. I'm one of the six chiefs. I control an entire bureau. But as a member of the executive team, I've had to help shape and manage that very budget, and I have experience doing so. The other thing is I have a pretty good working relationship with all the members of the Board of Supervisors. I'll give you an example. Phil Cerna. I recently worked with Phil um, along with the Sheriff's Department, um, County Executive and Mental Health Department on that very issue of the jail release. And we're continuing to work in a small group to try to fix that issue because that is Supervisor Cerna's area. In regards to Rich Desmond, I've worked with him on a fentanyl project in terms of awareness because we have so many people, including our young children, dying from fentanyl poisoning. But another interesting thing and um, is I recently went on a trip with Rich Desmond up to San Francisco and met with a gentleman. I don't know, Dan, have you read the book San Francisco? Have you read that? I'm familiar with it. Okay. So in the book, there's a gentleman by the name of Tom. Tom. I I think I've heard him speak on maybe NPR. I'm sorry. Yes, absolutely. He has. And so Tom worked for the city of San Francisco. Then he had foot surgery, ended up addicted to oxy, heroin, and then fentanyl. Within two months, lost both his kids, his wife, and his home, and was living in the Tenderloin District in a, in a doorway. So Rich and I, along with a few other people, drove up to San Francisco and met with Tom because we wanted to see ground zero, what was going on in San Francisco, what wasn't working, what was working, and get it from somebody who had suffered that and recovered, and he had such an authentic voice. And the information that he shared with us and what he showed us was amazing. And it's really shaped in terms of, I think, my approach and philosophy on how to try to tackle the homeless crisis. Because this was somebody who was homeless and pulled themselves out of it. And so the, it, we, it, it was an opportunity to really work with Rich Desmond, work with the Board of Supervisor on an issue. And so I think I'll have a great relationship and, and ability to work with him. You mentioned earlier, uh, and you gained quite a bit of national prominence for prosecuting the East Area Rapist and the Golden State Killer, mm-hmm. and that which was kind of interesting because of the trial or the, the hearings were during COVID and they, they were televised. And yes. I think they are held at Cal Expo, if I'm not mistaken. It was at the Sac State Ballroom. Okay, correct. Well, thank you. What Can you share any information with our listeners that may not have been apparent during the trial mm-hmm. or came out? during the you know the subsequent sentencing about the about that particular case. Absolutely. There's a particular story that when people go back and they watch on TV, they'll after the story understand what was going on. 
So there was a uh, the ver- there was a rape victim. The very first rape victim was out in Rancho Cordova. Um, she had been on TV. She had identified herself, so I can say her name on the air. Her name is Phyllis. Phyllis was the very first rape victim of the East Area Rapist. And so Phyllis, when we arrested uh, Joseph D'Angelo, would show up to court every single time. She sat up in the front row. When the case was given to me, I would meet Phyllis. You know, she shook my hand. She introduced herself. And her and I, after every court appearance, would sit there and talk. And so we got fairly close. And and I care very much to make sure that Phyllis and all the other victims got justice. We're near the end of the case. Phyllis came up to me and she says, Tim, I'm not going to be able to make it to court next time. And I said, why? Because she's always there mm-hmm. in the front row. Says, I have cancer. Oh. I've been diagnosed with cancer and I need to get chemo and radiation treatment. I said, Phyllis, I'll pray for you. And so when it was time for Joseph D'Angelo to plead guilty to all these cases and admit all these crimes, remember, we're in the middle of COVID in 2020. Right. We couldn't fit. Everybody was six foot social distancing in the courtroom. So we had to move it to the Sac State Barroom. And imagine the logistics of that. We had to take the most high profile, highly secure and sensitive inmate and transport him off-site into some unsecured location. So we had to coordinate with SWAT, the Sheriff's Department, with um, the Police Department, with the Sac State Police to all coordinate that. And so on the day that Joseph D'Angelo pled in the Sac State Barroom, there's like 200 people all spread out. And every time that he either pled or admitted to something, as a prosecutor, you have to stand up there and give the factual basis, like what happened in that particular case. And so when we gave it, for example, on the murder of Brian and Katie Majori, Brian and Katie's family stood up to represent Brian and Katie. Or when a a rape charge was brought up, the rape victim would stand up. But when it was time to read Phyllis's statement, obviously she couldn't be there because she was going through cancer treatment. So all the other victims in the ballroom stood up for her. And it was such a moving, moving moment. Fast forward, two months later, Joseph D'Angelo is sitting there listening to the impact statement. So when a person pleads guilty or is convicted, the victim of that crime gets to stand up in court and give an impact statement, how it affected them. So Phyllis was going through treatment and she wasn't feeling well. She was in the hospital. So her sister stood up and gave her impact statement in the courtroom. Two days later, we're back at the Sac State Barroom. This is the day Joseph D'Angelo will be sentenced and go off to prison. So we're there with 200 people again. I look across the barroom, and who would I see sitting there? Phyllis. Phyllis. And she had this beautiful smile on her face. For the first time in 40-something years, she had a measure of justice and a sense of closure. It was just beaming, and you could tell it. Three months later, Phyllis passed away. And so when I think about the case now, I think of Phyllis. And I think of all those victims that got justice, that got their day in court. And that's what I think of when I think of the case now. But there are so many other stories and and, and things about that case that I would love to share with your listeners. But that was just something that always sticks with me. And that's why we do what we do as a prosecutor. We are the voices for the victims. We speak on their behalf and we make sure that when the fabric of their lives have been torn apart, that they get justice. And that's what we do. One final question, and this is for the benefit of myself and listeners. We often, we being consumers of uh, entertainment, will often, often see district attorneys portrayed a certain way. Truth of the matter is, when you become district attorney, you're probably not going to be in the courtroom at all. Mm-hmm. How 
what what what's the day-to-day activity of the district attorney in Sacramento County in, entail? You know what it entails is we set policy, we set vision, um, we will we we have an executive team that manages the supervisors and the supervisor manages the prosecutors who are the line deputies going into court. And if anything, it's like um, you know the the head of the Joint Chief of Staff. You are dictating policy and leading by example and setting policy and making big decisions. But really, we have such an amazing office of amazing prosecutors and supervisor that for the most part run the day-to-day operation. But it's the DA that sets the vision and the course. And, and you mentioned you know, me running for district attorney. Can I just mention for a moment why it is that, you know, because people ask that, why are you running? Why would you run for DA? Absolutely. And so really the answer to answer why you really have to look at the where and the who. Because where you come from, where you grew up, really forms who you are. And the where and the who answers the why. So, Dan, I was born in Vietnam. And in 1975, as you know, Saigon fell to the communist north. And when that happened, I was just a child. My uncle, who worked for the South Vietnamese government, when the communists came in, they arrested him. Without a judge, without a jury, without a prosecutor. They sent him to a re-education camp in the jungle where they tortured him for seven years. You look at what's happening in China and Russia. That's what was happening in Vietnam. So 1976, my dad was a school teacher. I was almost five years old. He, he decided we needed to escape the country. So he took my favorite toy in the whole wide world, a little plastic gun. Lured you. Yes, and he painted it black. And I'm asking, Dad, what are you doing? And he just kind of laughed. He stole a uniform from a communist officer. So the night that we escaped, they put my wow. two-month-old brother in a cardboard box. They punch holes in it so he could breathe. We snuck aboard the boat along with about 30 other refugees, friends and family. And we were hiding there. My dad's up on the deck with the captain. He's wearing the stolen uniform and the fake gun. We're going through the Delta, through the checkpoints to try to make it out to sea. And we get stopped by a military guard. And the guard says to my dad, why are you out here? My dad says, oh, I just bought this boat from a captain here. And my wife and my two boys are below deck. And the guard says, no. I think you have a bunch of refugees below deck. And I want to search right here, right now. And my dad said, all right. Go ahead and search. And if you find a bunch of refugees, you can kill all of us, starting with me. But if you look down there, and all you see is my wife and my two boys, I'm going to take this gun, and he's pointing to the fake gun. The toy gun. And I'm going to blow your brains out. How dare you even question me? I outrank you. And he's pointing to the stolen uniform. So my dad had never gambled in his entire life until that moment. That was a real gamble. It was. So the guard looked at my dad for a moment. And he said, nah, we don't need a search. Come back here for a drink. So they go back for a drink. We're all freaking out. He makes it back. We make it out to sea. The problem, though, Dan, was the captain of the boat, his family got stuck on shore. So he jumped off the ship and swam back and left us. So now we got to make a decision. Nobody on that boat knew how to navigate the ocean. And we're trying to cross the South China Sea to get to the Philippines. Do we turn back? But if you get caught, what's going to happen? Execution. Exactly. So they I said, guess. Yes. So they said, the hell with it. We're going. So we make it out to sea, ran out of gas, ran out of food, ran out of water, just drifting on the ocean near death for about three weeks until a merchant ship picked us up, took us to a refugee camp in Malaysia where I spent six months. So when we were sponsored over to Stockton, we didn't have a, nothing but the clothes on our back. They didn't even have a bed to sleep on. Slept on a mattress somebody threw away and we cleaned it up with bleach. I learned how to speak English from watching Bugs Bunny cartoons <laughs> and going to ESL class. So I, I don't mean to laugh. Bugs no, Bunny were great cartoons. Great cartoons. That's how I learned how to speak English. Twenty-two years later, 
graduated from law school. And so I think that some people who've lived in this country, some, forget how good we have it. We have the best system of justice, the best democracy. Can we do better? Absolutely. But you know what? We don't need to tear the system down, dismantle it. We need to improve it, and we will. And I'm running for DA because this country has given everything to my family. And so it's time to give back. It's service above self. And I've seen injustice. I've felt injustice. And so I think I'm in a unique position, not only in my personal, but my professional life and my experience in the courtroom, in the executive room, in the classroom, because I'm an adjunct professor at McGeorge and in the community to make sure that when I am in the courtroom or when I am in the office, I say, Tin Ho, on behalf of the people, the DA is the attorney for the people for you. Yeah, you're right. Oftentimes, uh, people that have been born and raised here in the States, we take things for granted. But we, the things among many things that make uh, America great are our institutions. Without our institutions, we would really be nothing. So Mm -hmm. that's a a, a very interesting story. Tim, finally, how can voters get a hold of you if they want to find out more? Absolutely. If voters want to find more, they can go to www.tinho, that's T-H-I-E-N-H-O-4-F-O-R-D-A.com. So tinhoforda.com. They can also email me at tinhoforda at gmail as well. And so if they send that to me, um, I'll get the email. My campaign will get the email. I will get it personally. Um, And you can find out more about my campaign. My policy issues are really tackling gun violence, domestic violence, but also um, our homeless crisis and the solutions and the ideas that I have to do each of those things as we build trust and bridge bridges with all communities. Tin Ho, thank you very much for your time and best wishes on your campaign. Thank you, Dan. I really appreciate being on your podcast and, and, and thank you so much.